mentioned there were some that were fairly early adopters and willing to to come on board with the involvement of palliative care and integration and but there were others who were who were more resistant and that within the palliative care team there's there must have surely been some resistance toward in the in the in the um reverse as well i wonder if we could just explore so what what those barriers on either side were and sort of how they were overcome and actually if there are any ongoing um difficulties that you face as well yeah i think interestingly i think uh, from the icu side of things a lot of the perceived barriers were weren't weren't there it was actually uh, very quickly um you know recognized yeah and yes because we were probably quite a soft introduction um, and targeting the right people, but people who uh, were genuinely, you know, this is what are you doing? You know, what is this? We don't understand it. We're, we're few and far between. Um, the thing that needed changing over time, I think, I don't know what you guys feel is, it was more that that traditional model of, you know, palliative care being end, only end of life care. We only call them when somebody's dying. That was just changing that from uh, you know earlier and alongside was the biggest hurdle, and that just seemed to have has happened organically over time, I think, and people seeing the benefits. I mean, uh, so from my perspective, obviously I wasn't there around in the region when it was introduced, so I've only sort of come in when it's been more established, and you can see that cultural change comparatively to other areas that I've worked in that it's it's more accepting I'd say and more just normalized as that the involvement alongside I you know I, but we're making it sound perfectly harmonious mm. there's definitely elements of people's resistance to to involving palliative care from you know registrars my colleagues from specialties if you speak mm. to specialty registrars because you know, they've come from different regions, they're not as used to it on the intensive care or or just their perception of palliative care. And and, and it it can be, in my opinion, seen or felt as as, you know, giving up, not actively treating. And and so because it's commonly associated with end of life, which obviously, as we've said, has a very big role, but but the kind of you said, oh, you know, it, this complex patient with all these symptom control and the longevity and so on and so forth this be a really good patient to get palliative care involved with. Um, and you see a barrier kind of pick, kind of kick up going, oh, I don't think the patient would like that, or, or, or my boss wouldn't like that, or, or, or I, you know, I still think they need to come to intensive care for treatment. And you're like, and then you have to have that kind of conversational explanation to say, I'm not getting them involved because we're saying, you know, it, not, it's the futility of the ongoing treatment and we're moving towards end of life. It's more about actually, alongside our care they could be really helpful and, and help with those gray bits that we can't really not necessarily agree on but that we can't make a we we want a joint decision on and that so i see it occasionally and 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 see it um on referrals in the ward way where they're sort of referring to you saying why don't you do this and you're sort of saying well let's get palliative care involved and they're like you know they're for everything. We're like, well, I'm not saying they're not for everything. That phrase that I love. <laughs> but, yeah. Not yet. Is, is yeah, that, we hear, yeah. We still hear that a bit. We don't hear it much around the hospital as a whole, actually. Um, 
because when I used to get the not yet, so I remember bumping into a cardiologist and his um, congenital heart disease cardiologist said, I've got two or three patients that are coming your way. And I said, oh, you know, do you refer them? They told me no, not, not yet. And I said, well, can't, can't you find me a bit of hiccup or nausea or breathlessness or, yeah. or psychological distress and let us get in there on a symptom it's interesting that I think it's a lot more about perception, about its mm. team's perception of what palliative care is. Yeah. And in, in, in some circumstances, intensivist and, uh, and yeah, yeah, uh, 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 impression of what palliative care is, rather than the reality. And uh, so, and that comes down to then um, education. And Carol and I spend a lot of time, um, not least because a lot of intensive care staff are a movable fee, something, and change every six months. Yeah. So we, we often go to the, the nurses' training days and explain what we do and explicitly that, you know, it's not just about end of life care. And we've done a number of, you know, lectures uh, regionally and, and uh, in various forums, haven't we, to explain mm. what we've done. And so to try and get that education, but there's still, it's still quite an immovable uh, perception. And that's yeah. not helped nationally when we, when we stopped and presented these things. If you look, even on the BBC websites and things like that, it is palliative care and end of life care are used interchangeably. Yeah. Um, which doesn't help. So it, it 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 goes deeper than 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 yeah. healthcare. Yeah, it does. So and the, the other thing on the back of that is you have to have tenacity, because you know there is a constant flux of of non-consultant grade doctors. There is a constant flux of um, not so much HCAs but trained nurses, mm. and you just have to keep on doing the sessions. We found, didn't we? All of a sudden, we started the, the referrals dropped off a little bit, and the we came to see a couple of patients and there was a, a slightly shocked and affronted look to a couple of the, the new nursing staff. We yes. realised that there'd been a, a huge influx of, of, of new starters and that we hadn't had a chance to pick up on and, and mm. explain what we did. And so then we had to go back to almost to square one, mm. didn't we, for a little while? Yes. I was thinking, I, I hope that there's been a few enablers. Um, mm. Our team as a whole throughout the hospital um, decided way back since 95 that we we wouldn't just go along and prescribe on other people's drug charts now other people's electronic prescribing systems we can we do know how to do it but i hardly ever um prescribe we suggest i think you can on our electronic one don't you are you okay doing that? no i purposely <laughs> Thank you. Is that more the, the use of it rather than... <laughs> what you may or may not be aware of, is that I purposely chose particularly um, not to learn how to prescribe subcutaneous infusions of drugs or intravenous infusions of drugs, because actually I don't think it should be me prescribing, I think it should be me suggesting. So that's one thing. The second thing is that except in some circumstances when it's necessary, you know, I may put my head around the junior doctor's um, office door and say, need you to do some prescribing now, please prescribe A, B and C now, because there's always going to be situations like that. But on the whole, it would be go into the office and sit and talk and teach a bit harder in the COVID era, but um, we can still do it in, in, in different ways. And the, the third thing is that um, we try and take and create opportunities for teaching almost that people don't even realise are an opportunity for teaching. So I love what I call the Pied Piper of Hamlin effect, which is you might be um, at, at the nurse's station in ITU um, talking to um, an FY1 doctor about nausea and vomiting, and suddenly you've got two or three people there. Um, so, so I, I hope those... That sometimes when, you know, we don't, when we do our ward rounds, we don't always have a full afternoon of referrals and the nature of the work, and if there isn't, 
will grab a few junior doctors and sit down and say, right, let's talk about a symptom. Or... So I, th I think some of the um, particularly earlier doctors were the nursing staff. Mm. And in fact, very recently, I was talking to um, one of the charge nurses uh, and it was on the back of um, a young woman who, who, who died that day and whose young kids were on the unit um, before and after she died. And the conversations that it happened to be me had with a, a, a primary school age kid about whether or not she wanted to go back in and see her dead mummy and all that sort of stuff. And he just said to me, you need to know for you and you need to know for your team that in situations like this, the, the hardest situations that we find, we breathe the most almighty sign of, mm. sigh of relief as the palliative care team come through the door. We've also heard that around the hospital. Yeah. Um, I remember um, a gynecological cancer patient who was bleeding profusely and um, I was there anywhere. Anyway, critical mm. care were, were um, called to and it happened to be you and, um, and, and another of your colleagues who arrived and then the oncologist arrived and the oncologist just looked at who was gathered on this ward in a really difficult situation um, and, and said, I can't think of anything better. Palliative care and critical care together. I'm sure between us we can work this out. I think that highlights what you're saying is, is we've got the enablers, but the resistance that I, it seems that you guys have come across and, and, and the ones that I've seen myself is more about the understanding of what palliative care can do yeah. rather than someone sort of saying, I don't want you here involved in my care. It, yeah. It's because it might more, they see it as an indicator that we're stopping giving up yeah. that kind of yeah. mentality. Whereas that's changing and it's re requiring recurrent education and keeping everyone up to speed. I think that's the key. What but you do notice when you, when for whatever reason that the presence drops for a, a few weeks, yeah. a few months, yeah. that you have it, it, that that ingrained sort of um, view of what kind of care has to offer just drifts the other way again, and it's, so it has to be a constant reminder and presence we've had to do that over the last few months so that's with medical yes yeah, so, so so with covid um a most of the patients were, were, were um heavily sedated um and ventilated and either got better or, or, or didn't um and so our, our input was more remote we were trying to reduce the footfall into intensive care as well and so we have had to work quite hard over the lot and there's been a lot of staff changes over the last few months to, 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 sort to of rebuild, it, to again. Re rebuild yeah. it again. But talking of resistance, there's another uh, resistance, and that was within my own team. So um, there were some tricky moments, but we can manage trickiness, um, when, when people in my team were saying, your work on IT is taking you away from everything else. When the oncologists were saying, oh, it was lovely, they, <laughs> two of them said, have you been on sabbatical? I said, no. <laughs> no, I've just been working in some other areas of the hospital a bit more than oncology, but I still do come to oncology. Um, so a bit of a feeling of being pulled away, a bit of a feeling, of, is this really palliative care or is it something else? Um, so is that they didn't feel it was your uh, palliative care? They, they didn't see what the role was on so, the intensive yeah, care as you were setting some out? some did. And so what we agreed as a team yeah. was that we'd make sure, and uh, it was very much me at the beginning, so we'd make sure that members of my team came alongside me. And that's really important because on a, on a weekend or a bank holiday, we still sadly don't have a medical palliative medicine presence in the hospital, although we were working towards that. And so there are just the nurse specialists 
And, you know, there was a weekend when there was a really complex intensive care referral and they had to make themselves come onto the unit because it wasn't what they felt was was normal. So there's a really, really important thing about um, the whole of a palliative care team being able to be interchangeable and it not just being one person and it has at times felt like it's one person yeah. and and so I'm very pleased as it happens today um, I know there's two patients on the unit uh, this week who've been seen two and that's been the other sub team my team works in two sub teams and it's the other sub team who are seeing them and I think that's really really important yeah. so you have to make sure that everybody's able to come through the door that everybody's able to interact with the ITU nurses and doctors in a difficult situation and our role though is, is about being welcome and making yeah that alien environment, um, you know, a comfortable place to come to and uh, being welcoming. And and that goes a long way about understanding the palliative care role because you understand why people are there and then you, you, know, you want yeah. it. And I think other things that were potentially barriers, but I think on the whole we avoided, were, were things like um, routes of administration. So going way back on those early ward rounds, it was very obvious that we didn't need our, you know, our favourite really complex tool, the syringe driver, um, uh, because if, if, if people had enough IV ports, you could do everything IV. And I remember presenting this at a national palliative care conference, and one of the questions from an extremely experienced palliative medicine consultant was, um, are you allowed to use subcutaneous infusions on the intensive care unit? To which my response was, well, yes, and we do. But the first question is, what routes have we got available and what routes can we use? So most of the patients have an NG tube down. Um, or, and so you, if, if, if their absorption is OK, you can you can use the, the, the enteral route, or they'll have a pick line. Um, and so we do use subcutaneous infusions, but only really if we haven't got another route that's going to work or is available or if we are getting ready to, 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 to move them to a downstream ward for care whilst dying, or, or, or care not whilst dying, <laughs> but that, that they need a, a, a continuous no, infusion or something. A barrier I've brought about which helped, has been really helpful with your links to the hospice and then working on ICU is, you know, uh, at the start of this, I think we assumed a lot of this work would be about getting patients out of hospital when they were dying and facilitating those um, complicated um, transfers home or transfers to hospice. And uh, interestingly, that, that it does happen, but not maybe as frequently as we thought it was going to. But for those occasions when it does, again, moving a patient from intensive care with all that, that, you know, the perceptions of what that involves to a hospice. And actually having Carol, who could, or a member, any member of the pet care team who can speak directly to the hospital and say, no, actually, it's, going, it's fine, Don't, this, there might be a drain that's staying in, but it's not going to be a problem. There is a, a, an energy tube, but it's not an issue. That there ha- yes, that's a really good point. That there has been, um, we haven't done hundreds because there aren't that many appropriate patients, but we've, we've done a steady trickle every year of referrals straight out of ITU to hospices. Um, our local hospice, which is uh, the one we have the closest relationship with, but hospices across the south of England. And and there is a, there is, um, a degree of... Um, concern as you might imagine and and reassurance is required so that's a potential barrier to some aspects as is um the community so um we've had 
fantastic examples of GPs and district nurses and community matrons absolutely engaging in, in, in a, um, a discharge from ITU to home. But we've also had barriers. And you can't possibly do that. You know, we can't, how can we possibly move somebody who's been having one-to-one -one nursing or possibly one-to-two nursing um, home where we can't do that? So, so that's a, another set of potential um, barriers. But that's all about communication. I was about to say, if you have encountered those, what, like, how have you worked your way around that? Have you just kind of by talking through it? Yeah, reassurance, reassurance, reassurance. Mainly, and and um, we we have very close working relationships with all the different community palliative care teams. So we brief them up well as well. And then occasionally, um, although the best example that I remember is that guy back in 2007 on cardiac ITU with congenital heart disease. And because it was such, it was very unusual in those days to do ITU to home. I don't think I'd done it before. I think he was our first one. And um, so giving the GP our contact details gave that GP the, the reassurance, the reassurance that there was somebody who knew the patient who had been involved with their symptom control over the last couple of weeks, who they could who they could go back to. There is going to be natural human variability yeah. to how comfortable people are engaging with this and, and not engaging with it. So there's always going to be the early adopters and, and people who, uh, you know, won't see palliative care as having such a major on critical care. But I think what your survey. Uh, suggest and the fact that we're doing this now is that uh, and the general chitter chatter that you sort of see across uh, social media and, and the conferences is that I think there is a great realization that what we do uh, involves a lot of patients who are, are struggling and, and, and close to the end of death and we see more and more people in the last six months of their life on intensive care so um, I, I, my hope is that any Barriers that perceived barriers and maybe um, are throwbacks to how we, you know, how intensive care medicine was practiced 30 years ago mm. are vanishing, and mm. and so yeah, that's my hope. Yeah. So so we've we've um approached this as a quality improvement um piece of work over the last four or five years. We have done some research alongside that. Um, ICPAT, um, intensive care palliative care assessment tool study um, and that's been a, a qualitative study that um, we got NIHR approval for um, and um, patients who were exposed to palliative care in ITU and some who weren't and families some who were and some who weren't and staff have all been interviewed and it's created a wealth of um, Brackets unpublished. Well, yeah. I was going to say <laughs> we are we are um, in the process in the process of producing some abstracts from that and then a paper. Um, so the last year has really been a consolidation year for us, and um, it, it of course was interrupted in some ways by by the COVID pandemic. Although we've le learned a way to, to to work through that, and interestingly, um, seen a group of patients that we haven't talked about yet, which is some of the long stay. Um, post-COVID, mm. long COVID patients on ITU and, and beyond. Um, and what's really exciting is there's a new unit now. So yeah, the building started pre-pandemic um, uh, and miraculously continued through pandemic. So we've literally just moved in uh, to the first phase, the second phase of which includes uh, a wonderful uh, addition to the unit which is a palliative care suite essentially a, a, a large room where we can deliver icu like therapies but is uh, you know has space 
um, and amenities available for patients who may also be at the end of life, um, which is, we believe, relatively novel nationally, maybe internationally, yeah. to actually have that on an intensive care unit. You know? And the, the driver for that was a number of patients. Um, one, um, a, a young man who, who um, had sadly necrosed his liver post um, a Whipple's procedure and was dying. And um, I remember um, his wife taking two of the children in on either hand and asking me to take the four-year-old little girl in um, to say goodbye. And it might have been more me than her, but the environment of care just felt so wrong. And then I remember um, a, uh, a, a young Muslim man who, who was dying in, in a side room um, with his mother and um, with culturally sensitive um, chanting and, and, and prayers on a mobile phone on, on his pillow. And again, it just didn't feel right. So our vision, which is becoming reality, it is, is um, a space that can be made culturally sensitive, age sensitive, but most important, person sensitive. So that before um, a patient has maybe moved into that suite, um, for them and their, if they're awake and for their family, we can have asked about the rugby or yeah, the favourite well, beach or the favourite holiday. Microphone. And on a great big um, screen, there can be a picture of that place or they can bring in a memory stick with their favourite family photograph and that can be up or their favourite music can be playing. And the monitoring can be hidden away if we are doing any monitoring. Yes. And it, it, it just makes a, a better space. And I think, I, I imagine we're not alone in that frustration that we, when we get to a point sometimes when we are withdrawing, we're doing it in an environment that's, that's either not appropriate or because you're perceived to not be delivering uh, intensive care treatments, there's a, then a push to actually move the patient out of intensive care, away from the people that have had that relationship with the family and, and the nursing staff to a uh, uh, an environment on a ward, meeting a whole load of people for the first time, which just feels feels wrong. Um, uh, and obviously, you know, there are various pressures where that has to happen sometimes, but uh, to be able to find a space that sits on ICU, but I sat outside of ICU was a real, um, push for this wasn't it yeah and, and there'll be uh, room for the family to 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 be there alongside to have their own space by pulling across a, a door um, sliding door or to have one big open space and reclining chairs and possibly some way of them putting their head down overnight if they were staying overnight so we're really excited about that and that's our next space mm-hmm.